it's a sort of a real recording studio. I bought this recording studio on Craigslist from a nice Samoan man. You bought you, – you can buy a studio on Craigslist? I did, yeah. This is a modular studio. It's like a recording room that's freestanding within our larger office. Mm-hmm. And I, it's often compared by guests to a set from the movie Saw. Because <laughs> um, like, of the, the blood just Yeah, there's a lot the of There's yeah. a lot of blood on the walls, yeah. yeah. How, how important is it to get a – you know, a real studio. I mean, obviously, you've got a lot of like high profile people um, coming through the show, but you you have that back in your house as well. And and isn't don't people kind of expect that podcasts are taped in people's bedrooms? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it, there's a mi- it's a mix of important and not important. I mean, technologically, in terms of the sound, mm-hmm. there's a big difference between. Using one microphone and everyone having their own microphone. Sure. That's the first thing. Sure. Or recording it on Skype and everybody talking at the same time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's a few sort of levels. We're using essentially the same equipment we were using in my house, which is to say these Shure SM7 microphones. Give them a plug and, you know, a Mackie mixer and, mm-hmm. a, and a computer running Adobe Audition. These are the record. same microphones that Mark Marin uses on, on his at, podcast. Uh, at my recommendation. Yeah. And, um, and so... In a lot of ways, that was the studio. Now, that having been said, we were recording in a bedroom in my house. Mm-hmm. That bedroom happened to have a lot of books on the walls and stuff like that that actually made it a decent recording environment. But I, I chose this equipment specifically because it's forgiving. Now we're in a semi-real recording studio, and it is a little bit better, but it's not significantly better. I think the biggest difference is for us, you know, I remember when Jenna Fisher was on our show, um, who plays Pam on The Office, obviously, and, you know, she made friends with my dog. And that doesn't happen here in this recording studio. You know what I you mean? You can have dogs in offices, Jesse. I've you, seen that a lot. I you go to lose, startups. My dog does come to the office yeah. from time to time. But y- you lose a little bit of a kind of homey intimacy. Mm-hmm. You know, people, you can hear it on, on for example, Mark Marin's show. Yeah. Um, that, you know, Mark doesn't even tell people when he starts to record, when he's... Show starts. There's a difference, though. I mean, because that you, you, I, don't, I don't know if you really have a show where you can tie the setting into it, where you know Mark can turn the microphone on, let it roll for an hour, and that can be a big part of the conversation that we're in your creepy uh, uh, garage. Yeah, we do. We'll occasionally leave in a reference to uh, how the, our creepy abattoir-like studio here at MaximumFun.org. <laughs> but honestly, the biggest thing is it's kind of nice to be able, you know, to always know we'll have a clean edit point. Yeah. You know what I mean? But but is there, you know, are we at a point now where, I mean, do you still get more respect from a Lily Tomlin coming in here versus coming in your house? Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, maybe she's not the best example. Maybe a 70-year-old woman isn't the best example. But Pam Beasley is, is probably a better example of somebody who's savvy to the point where, you know, you understand that um, somebody can be blogging from their home and can be getting, you know, as many views as as the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think we lost something coming here as well. I, I was very careful when we chose the space. You know, we've only been in a studio and in, in an office for a year, and we've only we only moved because there was just too many people to have in my house. And I have friends who have studios in you know a strip mall in Burbank, and I knew that I didn't want that. And, you know, where we record, it's a, it's a historic building. We have a, a totally amazing view of downtown Los Angeles. It's in a moderately seedy neighborhood. But this is where the cake song happened, right, right the outside. The MacArthur Park, yeah. cake, cake in the Rain. The, the whole one time it rained yards. in Los Angeles. And so it was just trading one thing for another. You know, I knew that if we had a beautiful office, that would be 
better than having a house that I recorded in, even though I would be giving up the fact that, you know, when someone is in your home, they're automatically your guest and there's an intimacy inherent in it. Do, do you, you know, I, I certainly have uh, the option at this point in my career, I guess is the word, where where I could, you know, I, I can work from home every day, but I choose to go into an office because I, I, I can't work from home. I mean, is there a little bit of that too? Is there is there something to, to be said for not, I mean, you know, if you have the option to record in your pajamas, you're probably going to record in your pajamas, right? I, I talked to my friend John Hodgman, who I, with whom I do a show, before my son was born. And he said, just so you know, in about two years, you'll no longer be able to do your show from your house. Not just because my son would be running around yelling, but he said, there's simply no way to reasonably tell your kid, I don't have time for you right now, and not be a horrible parent. But on the other hand, there are times when you don't have time for your kid. And so you need a place to work that's separate from your family so that you are not a jerk that's telling your family, I can't talk to you right now. I'm trying to focus on this ledger book. Uh, I keep all my books in a ledger book. I also wear a green visor and <laughs> sleeve garters. Um, but you know what I mean? And and I loved working from home. And I had done it for the better part of 10 years. But, you know, there's something to be said for having a place you go to do your work. I mean, just having something. You know, when Jeffrey Tambor was on our show, he talked about, I, I want to say it's John Cheever. He worked in his in a in a den on a of his home on a typewriter. But every day before he went down to his den, he got up, he put on a suit and tie and a hat and walked down to his den. Which seems like a thing that you would do. You're you're, you're wearing a tie <laughs> right now. I mean, you you may or may not wear a tie to sleep. I do occasionally wear a tie around the house, but not typically. But you know, there's something to be said for mm-hmm. the ceremonial aspect of starting work, and that also makes a big difference in terms of finishing work. I mean, that's something that I have a hard time with because of the demands of my work, and ultimately, when I'm working, and I, you know, this is literal 60, 70 hour weeks, um, sometimes more, there's something to be said for having a place that you go to where you don't work in addition to having a place to where you go to where you work. This brings me back to something that I, I've been I've, I've been thinking about a lot and, 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 and something that I was actually thought about with respect to you. Um, My good looks? Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little embarrassed to be in this Diet, small space. Diet, exercise. Same. Um, Eat a lot of citrus. Is this is this idea, and 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 this is something that I that I ask creative people on a a, a fairly regular basis. Um, you know, if you want to go into to to directing, should you go get a desk job at Miramax? You know, should you get something that's kind of peripherally related to to what you want to do? And and I, I think back to you know because you and I have known one another for a number of years. We knew each other in college, and I and I think back to to that time when. We were graduating. You know, I've got a very specific story wherein uh, our friend Mike from the radio station and I were given the opportunity to get uh, an internship at uh, KMBY, which is the the alternative radio station in Monterey, and walked around and, and kind of got the tour and saw the, the the now classic commercial radio building where there are five different stations working out of there and and the the 
the music director told us that they listen to other radio stations. And anyway, the long story short, uh, we, we both sort of walked out, looked at each other and realized that we were neither one of us going to have a, a career in radio. Um, and you took, you took a very, you took a very different approach, which was, you know, you just, you just kind of went full bore into something. Yeah. Well, honestly, the reason I went full bore into something and you know, this, my show, my NPR show bullseye is essentially an evolved version of a show that I started when I was 19 and you were 20 at our college radio station. And the reason that I've continued to do it for 13, 14 years now is that, honestly, I couldn't figure out how to get into radio. (laughs) I tried. I took a swing at it. And in fact, had I, at one point... There was a point where I had an interview to be a PA on a show, a production assistant on a TV show here in Los Angeles. I was living in San Francisco, and a friend got me the interview, and I did the interview. And had I gotten that job, which I didn't, I would have quit the show and moved to Los Angeles to work in the television industry. This is when I was fresh out of college, 22, 23. And, you know, the reason I kept doing it was because the rest of the world was rejecting me. <laughs> And so I just thought, well, what if I just keep doing this and keep trying yeah. to make it better and keep trying to find money? But, but you know, when, when you look back at that time, can you see a, a scenario wherein you would be as happy as you are with your current job? I mean, you know, because, you know, it seems like, you know, there's maybe one or two exceptions and they're the two one or two exceptions that everybody brings up every single time they talk about how good public radio could be we talked about them before you know it's the it's the radio labs it's it's the this american life but can you see see a scenario in which you went into to public radio and were able to do what you're doing now i was offered a job in public radio recently hosting a show for a very respected producer uh, who i also respect a lot it would have been a really cool interesting job it would have paid reasonably well uh, i ended up turning it down but it has its it has its appeal. I mean, there are a lot of things about what I do that, you know, the truth is I would love to spend my time being creative and or going to the zoo with my son mm-hmm. rather than working on spreadsheets, trying to figure out guerrilla marketing techniques. But if but um, if you're you know if you're if you're like me and I, I think you probably are are to to some degree and and certainly our producer Ben is like this as well. Meeting, um, meeting chicks is easy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you're if you're handsome as the three of us, mm-hmm. you know, if you're somebody I don't know, it's hard for me to it's hard for me to let go. I I'm a, you know, I am certainly a, a micromanager and and you know, Ben can attest to this fact that you know, I like to ha- to have my hands in everything. So, you know, do you think that you would have given the <laughs> – I, I, yep. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. I, I, um, there's a lot of appeal in to me right now, especially since I've had a kid, in having a job where I got paid good and I just mm-hmm. go home at the end of the day and I'm done. Yeah. However, I really, really believe in what I do and that has gotten me through some really difficult parts of my life. And it makes the difficult parts more difficult in a lot of ways. Because it's a lot easier to it's a lot easier to go through tough times with something you don't actually care about. Mm-hmm. But I know that it, I can do a gut check and say, "Yo, this is something I really believe in." And I know people who have jobs where they work for someone else where they feel that way too. I mean, I you know, uh, if you want to talk about Radio Lab, you know, Jad Abumrad works for WNYC, 
And I'm sure when he does a gut check, he says, I'm really doing the thing I believe in. Yeah. He's been very financially and artistically successful. But, you know, it's funny. You, you, we started by asking the question, you know, should you just get a job in your field and sure. see what happens? Yeah. I mean, my recommendation when people who are, you know, just graduating from college or whatever ask me that is, yes, you should start something that is your thing and you should get a job in your industry. Is it important to – because ultimately what's going to happen is you're going to see the the worst of it, right? You're going to see see the bottom of it. I mean, it is – is that important? I mean, certainly you risk losing some of the romance, but is losing romance important? Honestly, I think the most important thing that you get out of having a job in the industry is relationships. Yeah. And that's something that I have consistently undervalued in my own mental calculus and paid a price for, which is to say that ultimately a big part of success is not networking in some weird, gross way, but having a relationship with someone who can help you when you need help mm-hmm. and help and conversely you know helping people when they need help has anybody ever gotten you know has something good ever come out of actually physically handing your business card to somebody yeah, i think probably so yeah. yeah i mean i think there there are a lot of um you know there are a lot of businesses where even that most tenuous relationship is really significant and people will actually give you a call to buy an ad or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that I've gotten a lot of benefit out of being more free with my time than maybe I even should giving people advice. Like, you know, I mean, just look at, take this example, for example. I was doing my show and a guy who had ignored my emails for the last couple of years emailed me, said he wanted to start a show that was in direct competition with my mm-hmm. show. And could I come over to his house and help him figure out how to do it? It was called Cow's Heart. <laughs> it was called WTF with Mark <laughs> Marin. And I just thought, you know, Mark Marin is a really funny guy. Yeah. I would really like to hear what his show is. But talk would about be people like. who has an, who spend his life not making great interpersonal connections. <laughs> That's true, but I mean he's also someone who has whose success is built on his connections. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the fact his, that his his show yeah. is about his relationships. Yeah. And, you know, like I went over to Mark's house and helped him out just because I thought this would be good. I would like to have that. And it's not that hard for me to go help Mark Marin out. And, you know, Mark was nice enough to come on my show, even if he did ignore a few emails thereafter. And, um, you know, I think Mark Marin's a huge talent. Mm-hmm. And that has been enormously beneficial to me. Now I am more than anything else known as the guy who told <laughs> Mark Marin what microphones sure. to buy. Um, and, and, you know, it means a lot to Mark that I helped him, and I really appreciate that. Like, I, I've done that for other people who didn't become a success, um, certainly. But it was really nice, you know, it was really nice that it that it is certainly, you know, quote-unquote paid off for me. So is, is the moral of the story, be nice to people because ultimately it can help you out, or just be nice to people because why not be nice to people? Well, it, it, the, the moral of the story is be nice to people because why not be nice to people, but then realize, oh, snap, yeah. this, is, this is how you become a success. You know, like the truth is, I don't know what it's like inside your head. It's very you scary inside my... Want very scary inside... It's a lot like this blood-smeared studio we're currently in. It's very scary inside my head, and it's all about everything that's going wrong at any given minute and all of the things yeah. that are wrong with everything that I'm trying to create. 
and you know and, and in my head the only way to do that is to like focus in more and more and work harder and harder and you know dry, dive deeper and deeper but the truth is that a lot of the time the answer is just to know someone that knows better than you you know to trust in other people's talents yeah to trust in other people's talent i mean you know the most fruitful working relationship of my professional life is with jordan morris who does jordan jesse go with me and you know did a did a college radio show with you in college sure you wouldn't ask him for fashion tips but you would do a radio show with him you would not though he's he's looking sharper these days yeah or if you want to know about you know orange county ska bands he'd be your guy and you know it's been it's been 10 years of this enormously rewarding for me both personally personally and professionally relationship that came because I let someone else into my show. Mm-hmm. You know, the sound, the sound of Young America was my show, my vision, my thing. And Jordan was a guy on my hall who was funnier than me. <laughs> and because I invited him in to share it with me, yeah. it's much more than it ever could have been with just me. And, and, and you know, people can... And I think, and this has probably been a large part of your success, both with 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 that show and with Bullseye, is, is people can tell when things are genuine, right? I mean, people can tell when when that relationship is organic, and people can also tell when you actually get really excited to talk about people or yeah. talk to people. I mean, I wrote I wrote this thing called uh, I wrote this piece called "Make Your Thing" for my uh, very genuine friend Jay Allison's website. Jay Allison's a guy who produced some, among other things, this I believe for public radio, real legendary public radio guy, transom.org called make your thing. And it was about making indie media. And one of the things was about relationships and valuing it and, and trusting in your relationships. And I, these buddies who did this show called you look nice today, amazing comedy podcast, huge comedy podcast that they're, they've stopped doing, but, you know, they're just some guys that thought each other were funny on Twitter mm-hmm. at the beginning of Twitter and then said, hey, let's do something together. And a lot of times, you know, sometimes you say, hey, let's do something together. And it turns out that the other person's a f- frickin' flake. And I don't know if I'm allowed to swear, but a, 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 a gosh darned flake. Like that explicit label. And they're, not gonna, and they're not going to pick up their, no. their side of the weight. And you don't want to stay in that. However, a lot of times... You know, that's the way that you find the people that are really valuable in your life. You know, the people that make your life better. This is this is what worries me, though. Um, you know, you look nice today. I mean, obviously, all those guys had some semblance of success outside of that. You know, but none of them were professional radio dudes. None of them were super famous podcast guys. Um, what worries me is that we, you know, that the pace that that technology is accelerating, the pace that. Technology is getting co-opted by outside forces that, you know, that maybe can't really happen much anymore. And that that's that it scares me. You know, I, I mean, I'm doing this podcast Not like right? it could three or four years. Exactly. Ago. Three or four years ago. And it wasn't that long ago. And, and you know, in this the is, days before Tumblogs. Yeah. Before. But yeah, I don't know what the portmanteau of Yahoo and Tumblr is going to be <laughs> before before that went down. But can it's that delicious? <laughs> it's called Yahoo. Like just because it's got the. Exclamation mark at the end. Uh, you know, can can that happen? I mean, we were talking. You were talking before about um, one of the things that's kind of, in a sense, legitimized the the podcast medium is the fact that like Adam Carolla came into it. It seems to be a double edged sword, right? Well, you know, I had this conversation with marketing guru Seth Godin, who is the only person with guru in their name that I would ever deign to speak to and then admit it later. 
Um, but I think Seth is a genuinely really insightful, smart guy. And he, w- I was talking to him about basically his theory is that if you're going to create something, especially in the internet age, that's new and, you know, you, you better either have a star or you better have something that someone want to tell each other about. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, well, what if your thing isn't really something, it's like really good, but it's not something that people want to tell each other about and there's no star associated. And he was like, yeah, it's going to be tough. Yeah, I mean, you know, I... I, I feel that way about my show. You know, my yeah. show, I, I have some audience from the dawn of podcasting when it was weird ham radio geeks trying everything out and being like, oh, this doesn't isn't terrible. Um, he's directly addressing the microphone <laughs> or whatever. But, you know, even today, I, you know, I have a hard time competing with folks who are a lot more famous than me in my field and trying to get attention for a show that's, you know, in-depth interviews about the creative process. Yeah. And, but, and you're, you're speaking as somebody who has had some semblance of success yeah. there and you're in your, you're continuing to, to, to struggle to set it apart. And part of it is just, you know, that, that, as we said before, that, you know, there isn't maybe a, a place for that. Right. I mean, we, we, you have to invent that place. I mean, you have to feel like, you know, when I started the sound of young America, which became my radio show bullseye, I thought, I wish there was something like this. Sure. You know? Sure. For me, it was about the culture that I cared about getting the thoughtfulness that th- things got on public radio. You know, that, that I loved the thoughtfulness of public radio, but I didn't love what they were covering. I wanted it to be about my stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted that to be in the world. And the odds are, if there's someone, if there's you, there's probably other people who share that. And, you know, if they're not, you'll find out. You also have to do a good job, which is the last of my 12-point program and make your thing is do a good job. I actually talked to Seth Godin about that one, too. And I was like, how can you figure out whether or not you're doing a good job? And he's like, you know, you just have to have read a lot of books to know whether your book's any good. And even then, you kind of maybe don't know. Yeah, it, you know, did you did you anticipate early on that 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 NPR is going to kind of come around to it? In a sense, it has. In a sense, it has. In the respect <laughs> yeah. that, in the way, in the respect that yeah. it's that it's syndicating you, but but at the same time, while you're getting syndicated on NPR stations, car talk reruns are. Yeah, I, it's funny. I still kind of wonder if NPR is going to come around to me. In and you're right that they, you know, I'm with NPR yeah. now. And every all the hundreds and hundreds of radio stations in the country make their own public radio stations in the country make their own schedules, and you know our show's on a few dozen of them. However, that having been said, the one thing that's nice is that I learned by having been rejected from those venues in ways that I was surprised by. I made up other ways to make a living. <laughs> I'd like to, to... And they're hard, but I mean, I... And I would rather just do one thing and have money flow in. But on the other hand, now I know I'm making money. I'm making a living. I don't have to worry. worry I have health insurance. Mm-hmm. And there's three or four, four or five people out there working. Yeah, I got half a dozen employees yeah. or something. So I, I'm fortunate that I'm no longer dependent upon them, although I would still love their approval. I, I want as I would love the approval of my distant father. Yeah, that, just I just got Mark Marin. That's your Marin episode. Are yeah. we good? Yeah, are we're we good. good. We're good. Uh, I, I'd like to dwell a little bit more into uh, to getting rejected in ways that surprised you. What does that mean? Well, I mean, it's funny. Like when I when I got the first call from Public Radio International, who were our original syndicator, 
uh, or distributor, we call it in public radio. Um, I got a call from their programming guy, and he said, if we were interested in distributing your show, would you be interested in having us distribute your show? And I said, yeah, of course. Yeah. I was working as a secretary, a part-time secretary for $12 an hour. Um, and PRI I, is the This American Life people. Yeah, exactly. And I was so I was like, yes, yes, is yeah. the answer. And I did not hear back from them for like eight months. Eight months later, they called and said, hey, you know, we had some meetings. <laughs> we are interested. And then I got the first thing that said how much money I would be making. The first year, it was like $7,000. Mm-hmm. And I said, how can I make a radio show for $7,000? And they said, you know, they were nice about it because people in public radio are very nice. But they basically said, that's a YP, not an MP. Yeah. Um, and, you know, even in the, their sunny projections five years down the road, it was 25000 So... I thought that once I got in, I would be golden. I figured like, oh, well, shows must get paid for by something. So if they're on a lot of stations, someone's paying those Mm -hmm. people to make the shows. (laughs) So that was a weird – I mean that was after years of trying to get a job or get in anywhere. But that was like, oh, oh, I see. Like (laughs) this is is a messed up situation. Where, where does where, you know where where do they go? I mean, obviously they, they they've got to know to some degree that they're kind of you know being aged out that they're that you know that 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 maybe people aren't. I, I guess you said that it's they they've plateaued, which at least they're not you know on the downward slope right now. But you know they need to know they have to know that that you know a lot of that market share is getting eaten by podcasts by people who can go out and find that really great content and have it custom made for themselves. They're they're obviously they're kind of they're making a killing in the the podcast space, at least if you look at the charts. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the charts, you see that they're getting a lot of downloads. Whether they're making a lot of money from those downloads is an open question. Um, Part of the problem is that the structure of the finances in the public radio world is such that NPR and the other big content makers are have a hard time asking for money directly from their uh, online audiences because it alienates stations. Mm -hmm. However, that having been said, you know, I think to their credit, they all have just decided to jump into podcasting because of their public service mission, which I think is very great and very admirable. Um, and, you know, I mean, they've been – it's a slow-moving world, the world of public media. I mean, it is really slow-moving. But if you compare where public radio is at to where public television is at, there's no three tenors specials on public radio. Uh, and there is This American Life and Radio Lab and Planet Money and Wits and so on and so forth, in addition to the reruns of the Car Talk Guys, which, you know, I mean, people love reruns of the Car Talk Guys. Yeah, but, you know. I even kind of enjoy reruns of the Car Talk Guys. <laughs> but, 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 but it's, it's such a weird model at this point because what, what's the point of reruns in 2013, right? People like to listen to them and pay to support the stations that bring them to them. Yeah. So but, that's the point of, yeah, that's the point of reruns in 2013. I guess I mean from, from the respect of, you know, these are things that you could just go and download. But is it just, the, is yeah, it, is it that, but, is it that the vast majority of, of public radio listeners at this point aren't, active downloaders brian half of americans don't use the internet regularly (laughs) so (laughs) that's 150 million people i like to yeah i I would think of of you know a a large percentage of public radio listeners as being kind of progressive people though yeah they're yeah sure and they're and they're highly educated um and so on and so forth they're also substantially older so thus less likely to utilize you know cutting-edge technology yeah but 
you know, I mean, they, public radio has made a lot of efforts in the digital space. Um, there are a lot of shows that are produced specifically for the digital space. It's just a matter of public radio figuring out new models to finance those things. I think they have an advantage in the sense that most of these outfits are nonprofits. M- mine's not, but most of these outfits are nonprofits. And so uh, their first responsibility is to, you know, do good in the world and make things that are good and share them with people. Yeah, and, and obviously uh, obviously, they're tremendously good at what they do. And, and to, to, to an extent, they know exactly what people want to listen to and, and are, are giving it to them. But, you know, I'm wondering, and again, to get back to something from our college radio days, um, you know, as you were getting those ham radio people coming on and listening to the show, you were also getting a tremendous amount of pushback from listeners to, uh, to folk shows, for example, you know, people <laughs> who did not want what you were offering up. And, and I'm wondering if... And, you know, and certainly there was a little bit of... Are we going to talk about the show that came on after We're not going to talk about it specifically. by Bob DeBolt, a man that lived under a tarp in the woods. Rest in peace, Bob DeBolt. May he rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, We're not going to talk about... sour, mean, smelly self. (laughs) We're going to move on from Bob DeBolt. We're not going to talk about him him specifically. But, uh, you know, I only bring that up uh, to to, to ask, you know, and, and... Certainly, you had you had taken kind of to, to a degree an aggressive approach, you know, in that you, you kind of, uh, in a sense, went out of your way. I felt like maybe to alienate some of those people, and I'm wondering if if you know if now that you're syndicated on these public radio stations where you know people want to listen to. And I love Terry Gross as much as anybody else, but people want to listen to the, the you know the dulcet tones of Terry Gross. Whether you're getting that that kind of visceral reaction, and if so, are you going out of your way to to appease people to to do something that that hits exactly what you want to hit with a radio show while appealing to as large of an audience as possible? There are things that I do do to appeal to as large of an audience as possible, and things that I don't. So. One example is a purely generational thing, which is my manner of speech. I will once in a while get an email from someone that says, I can't listen to your show. Stop saying like you Valley Girl. This is funny that you bring this up, though, because I was, I was mentioning, and I don't know if you've noticed this about yourself, but I was, I was talking to Ben on, on the way over here and, and, and said that I, I think that doing radio has affected your manner of speech even in daily life. That's possible. You would know better than I, having known me for so long. Um, but I will say, like, I speak like the 32-year-old that I am. I mean, I speak like a professional radio host version of the 32-year-old that I am. But that means that occasionally I say like. You know what I mean? And I'm not going to change that. I'm not going to pretend to be an old person. <laughs> so there's that. Or, or for example, we sometimes get complaints about the fact that we do segments about hip-hop on the show. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty percent of Americans hate hip hop. But but you know, is it is it that you're doing hip hop, or is it that you're not doing hip hop like Terry Gross does hip hop? I mean, Terry Gross does Jay Z, but she does it in the Terry Grossiest way possible. Well, J- Terry Gross, even I think Terry Gross is is admirable in her commitment to keeping fresh culture on the air. I think Terry Gross does a pretty good job overall. But, you know, even Terry Gross very, very, very rarely does hip hop. I mean, she got an interview with Jay Z. I'm trying to think of another hip-hop interview since yeah. De La Soul, which was like five years ago. Yeah. Questlove, she had Questlove on. But, you know, we do segments about hip-hop. You know, we have a regular segment uh, once every six weeks or so where a hip-hop critic comes on and recommends new hip-hop releases. 
you know, we also have one where a critic, where critics come on and recommend new movies. Critics come on and recommend new books, new indie rock releases, new country release, whatever. Comic right? books. Comic books. Yeah, exactly. You you do comic book recommendations on the show. Mark Frauenfelder does uh, recommendations for Mark Frauenfelder. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of he's one of our favorites. He gets he gets a broad purview. But you know, I'm not going to drop that just because someone has this weird ancient yeah. thing that well, it's like race music and they shouldn't it shouldn't be allowed on the waves but airwaves. that's the crazy thing right i mean if like you know if, if these people in in 1940 would have been listening to jazz music or 1950 would have been listening to to little richard i mean i think it's again just go, gets back to unfortunately the fact that it's kind of that, that it's kind of aged out and part of the reason why it's aged out is because they're not letting new people in and part of the reason why it's aged out is because a lot of people have found this new and exciting medium and have land rushed it. That having been said, while I won't compromise on those things, one thing that I strive to do with Bullseye is take these subjects that are, and these people who are the subject of really passionate, deep interest, like I think probably a good example would be a favorite guest from the last couple of years, Ian Mackay from Fugazi. Fugazi is a band, you know, a punk rock band that, has changed the I mean, lives. Post hardcore, but you know sure. who's who's keeping track. Has altered altered the course of what would you say a hundred thousand Americans? Well, lives? And, and he did it twice. Yeah, and on the other hand, there are hundreds of millions of Americans who have never heard of Fugazi or Ian Mackay. And so, what I see as my job in having Ian Mackay on my show is do an interview that has the depth that someone who knows about Ian, who Ian McKay is mm-hmm. would want, but also is welcoming to people who are like, I have no idea why anyone would like punk rock music. This is something that I'm, I'm struggling with right now as, as I'm trying to figure out what this show is. Part of one of the one of the things I wanted to do when I approached it was kind of I don't keep talking about Marin, but be kind of the anti Marin in that like the chief complaint of that show is that, top 15 minutes are him talking you know sometimes about the guest sometimes about himself and i and and the idea is to just start to dump people into the interview i'm not sure if that's a good approach or a bad, a bad approach but uh, you know the thought is sort of like you know you'll you'll listen to the show you'll get into the show and you'll trust that this host hopefully that you like and are listening to is going to turn you on to somebody new and interesting and then you can get context later i you know it's something that i struggle with all the time in formatting bullseye uh, it's very challenging, and I don't know what the right answer is to it. You know, I mean, it's something that I, you know, a- as I've looked at the audience for Bullseye over the past year, year and a half, I've wondered how can we introduce more new people into this world. And you know, there's one way to go would be to just target an audience of people who already get this thing that we're doing, and but that's not what our show is. So. That's to some, you know, my friends who have shows that are frankly more popular than mine, like Mark or Chris Hardwick, who does a Nerdist. And they've both chosen, at least at the start, to really focus their shows on a specific Mm -hmm. thing so they can speak to an audience that gets it automatically. And that makes a lot of sense in an internet content world. And um, if I had it to do over again, I don't know. I mean, it'd be tough. I mean, the truth is that the thing, you know, hip hop might be the thing that I would be most qualified to do that for. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had people tell me, like, you should start a hip-hop show. Yeah. But I don't think square white guy hip-hop <laughs> hour is is really, you know, I yeah. don't think it's necessarily right or appropriate or 
comfortable for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, also rappers never show up for interviews is really annoying. <laughs> um, but like I, you know, it's a, it's a matter of balancing a lot of different factors. And I don't, I don't freaking know what the, what the solution to all that is. But ultimately what I go back to is, do I think this is a really good thing? Like, yeah. is this something that I believe in and would stand up for? If it is, you know, just figure out how to make some money from it enough so that I don't have to worry that I'm going to break my leg and go bankrupt. Sure, or or you you take my approach and you make money some somehow you know in another way, and then you launch a, a different podcast every three months. You know, it's funny. I mean, you're I under I understand your joke, and I've been a fan <laughs> of several of your podcasts. Thank however, you for thank you for recognizing that it was a joke. However, I would say that. You know, when I give, uh, when I do a talk about making indie media, one of the things that I have learned to be really explicit about is my sex life. No, <laughs> is one of the things that I've learned to really lay out is that I honestly think that one really good way to pursue this is to have a job that you don't mind and do something you think is really awesome without mm-hmm. earning a lot of money on it on the side. Yeah. And I think that's perfect. I mean, I don't think you should necessarily do it completely for free because amateurism is pure and more valuable. But, like, it is – I think it is a very viable thing to do to do something that you really care about and not get paid for it Um, if you can also find a job where you are getting paid enough – whatever amount of money is enough money for you and leaves you enough – of yourself sure. to do the thing that you care about. Yeah, and I, and, and I joke about it a lot, but, you know, I, I, I think that I've been exceptionally lucky in that respect and that, that, you know, maybe if you stay in something long enough that you didn't initially intend on getting into, you, you can shape it into a form that you love. I mean, you know, you, that you can travel around the country talking to interesting people about interesting things. I mean, things. there's also an element of there is... Is as human beings, there is something immensely satisfying about craft, and craft is something where it, it almost, you know, it almost doesn't depend upon what the subject of your craft is. It depends on whether you are working towards a goal of getting of doing something in a more conscientious and high quality way. Mm-hmm. I think what you need to do is think about what is it that is important to me and that I care about? How can I support myself and or support my family and get to do what I like to do? And whether that is I work at Boeing during the day and at night I go home and work on my train setup, you know, my model train setup, that's what gives you joy, then by all means do it. You know, I'm really inspired by... One of the things that inspires me the most in the world, and I just spent some time with it, so it's sort of fresh in my mind, at the Smithsonian uh, Museum of American Art in downtown D.C., which is where there's the, the mall. Not on the mall. Not it's the mall. just it's off the mall. It's it's in downtown. It's the Museum of American Art and the uh, uh, Portrait Museum mm-hmm. are in one building, and they have a folk art wing of the Museum of American Art. And there's this thing called the Throne of the Seven Heavens, if I'm remembering it, what it's named correctly. And what it is is this this man, unbeknownst to anyone that he knew, he worked during the day as a janitor in a school. Oh, uh, uh, is this Henry Darger? No, this it's is Henry Darger. different from this guy. Um, Henry Darger-esque character. It's, yes, without the, without the weird yeah, uh, little girls with yeah. penises sure. flying around. Yeah. 
he came home to this two-car garage mm-hmm. that he rented that wasn't attached to his house and built this throne to welcome the second coming of uh, Jesus. And his throne is made out of aluminum foil and scrap wood. And it's one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in your life. And I think, you know, like, this guy really believed in making this thing. It doesn't even matter if I believe in it. I mean, I'm an atheist, you know. I don't... But he really created beauty for the world and for himself by making this thing that wasn't his job, that wasn't anything. And ultimately... Whatever your thing is, if it if it gives you something, and I say go for it, and and you know, I mean, capitalism's a little rough. I'm I'm for it overall, but it's a little <laughs> rough, and you know, you find some find some opportunities to make some yeah. money. You know, if your thing is becoming a rich person, I don't know. You know, I just don't have much time or thought to give to you. I don't care. Yeah, but and there are go there are lemon. reasonably easy ways to do that. <laughs> right? yeah, you just become a finance to, guy, right? Yeah, like you yeah. just work really hard and become a finance yeah. guy. And my wife went to law school and um, there are a lot of lawyers who are lawyers for really great reasons. But a lot of the people that I met that went to her law school, it was just because they didn't have any vision for their lives or any interest in anything. And they just wanted a job that they could just spend a lot of time doing and make a lot of money because they figured that's what you're supposed to do. And, you know, they're supposed to be successful members of society. But I know for a fact that they're like super sad. You know, don't need that. Yeah, we're all we're all mis- walking around miserable ultimately, right? Yeah, everybody's sad. And for some of you know, for some of us, you know, especially Mark Maron. You know, and for some of us, like Mark Maron, that's what that's what drives us to to other things. I mean, it's perpetual per- perpetual dissatisfaction that makes you makes you want to do better with your life. Yeah, I know that I'm I'm sad. I'm so sad that I have to build this elaborate <laughs> this throne. Happy, yeah, I'm building this for throne. the coming for when Christ comes onto your podcast. You would not believe the throne I've made for when. Christ Price comes onto my podcast. Sure, SM7s <laughs> got really nice cans. Well, if there's one thing I could say about Christ, it's that he had nice cans. Mm-hmm. Are we good? I think that's in the Bible. We're good. Thanks. All right, everybody. That was uh, Jesse Thorne, of course, from uh, from Jordan Jesse Go, from Bullseye, from the the MaxFun.org Empire. Uh, actually, I should mention that I'm recording this a day after MaxFun, uh, the MaxFun Con. I sadly was unable to attend, but I got two new Twitter followers out of the experience. So you know, not 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 a total loss on my end. Uh, thank you so much uh, to Jesse for taking the time to do that. Thanks to to Thomas, the Max Fun intern, for recording that. As you you probably surmise from the better than usual sound quality that that was recorded uh, entirely in uh, Jesse's downtown Los Angeles studio. Beautiful place. You should visit it if you get a chance and maybe you'll walk away with some Girl Scout cookies. Uh, thank you to Brian for cutting this thing together. Uh, oh, oh, I want to thank uh, Mark Freundfelder, of course. This is not important information, but this is the first episode of this show that I'm actually recording since we joined the Boing Boing Podcast Network. It's a, it's a big thrill on our end. If you like what you heard, you can uh, send us an email. It's riylcast at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Tumblr. It's also riylcast.tumblr.com. And uh, if you get a chance, don't forget to rate us on iTunes. We'll see you again soon.